Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. We're going to stay with the climate change topic and South Africa's response to it because quite honestly, I can't think of anything more important. If we get this right, we succeed as a viable democracy. If we don't, we simply slide into obscurity, a, a failure. But we can be contenders. My guest today is one of South Africa's most talented public intellectuals and an absolute giant in academia. Professor Mark Swilling is Chairman of the Development Bank of Southern Africa, just for a start. Distinguished Professor of Sustainable Development and Co-Director of the CST at the University of Stellenbosch. He's a member of the United Nations International Resource Panel, a fellow of the World Academy of Arts and Science, and he's been a visiting professor at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands and at Sheffield in the, in the UK. Mark, thanks so much uh, for finding time to talk to me. I want to stick to a subject close to your heart, the so-called just transition from the coal-fired economy we are today to the renewables-dominated economy we hope to become, we promise to become by 2050. Uh, that may sound like a long way away, but actually it isn't. And I wanted to talk to you because you've done two gripping things in the past few weeks. I read them in reverse order, I think, starting with a very powerful piece uh, in the Daily Maverick, arguing that we declare now, as we did sort of with COVID, a state of disaster uh, and give ESCOM because it manages such a vast power system, 24 months to install 10,000 megawatts. That's 10 gigawatts. That's roughly the size of Kusila and Madupi all over again, slightly more of new solar and wind power plus 5,000 megawatts of storage inside 24 months. There's a crisis situation. You're arguing persuasively that experts, groups, and uh, people from industry and academia and civil society be formed to advise uh, the ESCOM implementation team, and that, I quote, a partnership comprising the major energy users, municipalities, energy supply companies, and funders should be constituted to accelerate implementation by any means. Wow. That's, that's one of the most powerful statements I've seen. What do you mean, Mark, by by any means. What does that look like? Well, um, thanks, Peter. What I mean is that we need to firstly commit to the mission, which is end load shedding in 24 months. It is technically and financially feasible to achieve, and the partners need to come together to, not to bicker and compete and position, but to say, let's pull together to make this goal happen. And by any means, it means essentially bringing together all the technical and financial resources within an enabling framework to get the job done. And that enabling framework, I don't believe will happen if we continue to have all the different institutions uh, going up against each other, which is the existing situation. You have the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy pulling one way, NERSA another way, ESCOM another way, the IPP office another way, and this is not going to deliver the goods in 24 months. Who's listening? I mean, you know, what you're describing in, in, in a way is a problem of leadership rather than rather than capacity. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, it, it would be a bold decision to... Um, to firstly declare some kind of national disaster, which is really just uh, recognizing the de facto situation. Um, secondly, you can't do that without a center of coordination and facilitation. 
And, you know, that may, some people argue that could be oper Operation Vulentlela in the presidency. I'm not sure this is what they do, i.e. implementation. Yeah. Uh, ESCOM with its engineers, yes, it's lost a lot of capacity. Yes, it's not seen as particularly legitimate in the eyes of the public, but it does run the national energy system. So I'm arguing it should be ESCOM. And and let me just ask you, just so that we know what we're talking about, is our crisis a climate crisis or an energy crisis? Well, in the South African context, the, the two conflate. Uh, I would say it's primarily an energy crisis, and the solution to our energy crisis is also a solution to our climate crisis. But in order to build the coalition of the willing to take this on, it will be easier if it is articulated as a response to the energy crisis, because that is what people feel on an everyday basis now. True, in KwaZulu-Natal, they're feeling the climate crisis yeah. via the floods, which has really devastated a lot of people. But that's not the majority of South African experience. You, in fact, you call the floods in KwaZulu-Natal the canary in the coal mine. Yes. Um, and you suggest that... Um, Rebuilding KwaZulu-Natal should be our laboratory for designing, constructing, and operating climate-resilient infrastructures. Um, business as usual infrastructure design will just set that province up for failure when the next floods arrive, which you correctly predict will be soon. Um, but that's exactly what we're doing, isn't it? I mean, in the Presidential Infrastructure Office, I don't know what it's called, but um, we don't really, we're not good at thinking out of the box, let alone thinking particularly quickly. Mark, and not a lot of countries are, frankly. Um, how do you get this going? I mean, you're a unique, uniquely positioned academics in the DBSA to really, you know, pound the table. Yeah, although I'm not here representing the DBSA, I can say that we, you know, we, we continue to provide funding support for municipalities around the country, including uh, Etiquini. Um, uh, but to be very, very honest with you, it's very difficult to to impose conditionalities on that funding that the design of the infrastructure should be climate resilient because actually the skill sets in the engineering firms that do the designs are not up to are not fit for purpose they're not up to scratch so there is an investment yeah. that is required actually so if you if you 20 years ago wanted to design a, a, a green building, nobody could really help you. But every architectural firm and engineering mm. firm has has a has a designer uh, that can do green structures now. But that's not true for large scale infrastructure. Uh, so I think we've got a learning curve to go through before we really know what climate resilient infrastructure actually looks like but nonetheless you've got you, you want you are wanting a, i presume a climate resistant energy infrastructure of ten thousand megawatts up and running in two years yes that's that's more about mitigation okay. so so i i was I, my previous response was more sure. to the mazulu no, natal yeah. funds which is adaptations in other words how do you design roads sewer systems yeah. Uh, you know, water systems, um, landscapes in a way that anticipates flooding. Um, that that's a very skilled, relatively new um, skill set that is that that is required. When it comes to energy, and you're talking about mitigation, yes, that's well known. 
Uh, we've built 6.2 gig- gigs of uh, renewables in South Africa since 2010. Uh, we know how to build these things now. We know how they operate. We know their risk level. We know they come in on budget and on time, and there's been virtually no corruption. Uh, so we know how to do that, and we just have to go for it on a massive scale and you and what you do what i really liked about your your piece uh in the in in the in the in daily maverick and it differs slightly in tone from the from the paper the earlier paper that it comes out of and we'll get to that in a moment but you are emphatic in your statement of when you say the only technology that can deliver at affordable rates what is needed in 24 months is wind and solar wind and solar power that fact yes. cannot be disputed that, yeah that's absolutely correct even if we even if we could get funding to build coal fired power stations even if we could get that money we, we which we can't even the chinese have said that they're not going to give us money for that it would yeah. take 10 years or more to actually Get it all done. Yeah, uh, we, we we don't have ten years. It's interesting in the in the um, in the earlier paper, um, which I'm getting to before I necessarily want to. You suggest, um, and this is the paper that you participated in with as the Center for Sustainability Transitions, with something called the Blended Finance Task Force, which I think is based not in South Africa where you say you also want 50% of our power, 50% of our power to be generated by renewables by 2030. That's seven and a bit years' time from now. That's surely not possible. Well, uh, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't be wonderful, but, you know, to do that, you really need a purposeful, focused government for a start, let alone private sector and all the other bits and pieces. You need somebody... To say this is what's going to happen, and you know, the Germans have stood up and said, um, I can't remember his name, but the German Vice Chancellor, Deputy Chancellor, who's the head of the Green Party, said we're going to be we're going to be 100% green economy by 2035. 100% Germany. How do we compete against that? I think I, I think that starting point for South Africans is and and South African business is to realize that technically and financially it's possible. Uh, we, we know how to do it. The resources are there. Um, the funding, there are shovel-ready projects that can get the, the first 10 gigs done uh, within 24 months. And that would trigger a momentum that would result in an escalation. Yeah. Once you start building renewables and you, and you, and you, and you have a framework of, that ensures consistency and long-term certainty, it it generates uh, all the backup systems, the manufacturing systems, everything that is required in order to sustain this basically forever. Because once you start building renewables, you can't stop. Every You have yes. to rebuild what you do in 20 years, what you've built uh, yeah. today. Yeah. So, so you're right. Uh, what we therefore need is a political decision that says this is a serious enough crisis to be bold to save the economy. And... I do believe it's more serious than the pandemic. Yeah, uh, more people are going to suffer uh, it, when when things really start going wrong. They're already mm. going wrong, uh, but it could get worse. You, you raised the prospect of an actual system collapse. I mean, is that is that we keep being told by us? Come on, I do feel sorry for Andre De Rota and his team. I know they 
working hard with almost you know um, no bullets left in the gun uh, in the magazine but but um it, it, do you really think that a system collapses if is is possible here I, I i do i'm sorry to say i'm a, i'm an academic so i can actually deliver some bad news um the a system collapse is simply uh, okay just uh, think of it this way the escom leadership director included and the others have said we cannot be certain about whether any given power station is going to be fully operational as it should be tomorrow so it can tri- any of those power stations can trip at any point in time if you have the perfect storm where you have too much rain you have wet coal you have sabotage you have just normal breakdowns all is happening at the same time it could get to a point where load shedding goes uh through to level 8 and then you get into a shutdown and a shutdown can last 5 days because you have to harmonize all the different yeah. power stations to the right uh frequencies to get onto the grid yeah. at the same time to switch it on and that's that's a yeah. i don't think that's a completely yeah. unrealistic the, the fix that you that you describe for this transition from from coal to renewables is really very very expensive um it's 250 billion dollars uh, roughly uh size of our gdp um it includes uh the, the timely exposure of all of your coal plant 5 to 6 gigawatts 5 to 6000 megawatts of renewables a year double what we do now you want 160 gigawatts by 2050 which is almost i think three times as much as escom can produce right now 33 gigawatts of batteries and interestingly enough i hadn't thought of this vanadium rather than lithium because we've got the vanadium rehabilitation of the grid to take on more renewables and then you want climate justice outcomes worth some 10 billion dollars for workers and communities impacted by the change where does the money come from all of it not just for instead of thinking about it as cost think about it as investment mm-hmm. and the, the those are the kinds of investments which are generative so the investments in the um in in generation are generative and the investments in the transmission grid are are, are generative so those are the two biggest uh half the 250 billion and just by the way the 250 billion is is between now and 2050 yeah. um and if you work it out on a per annum basis it's roughly 4 5% of gdp per annum and that aligns with uh nick stern and very many other expert opinions that um the response to climate change globally in financial terms should be roughly 4 to 5% of global gdp right so that amount is not is not out of line um uh, globally uh and it's and it's if you understand it as an investment it's actually a stimulus yes. for economic yeah. growth because most of it is 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 generative where you have costs so to speak is in early closure accelerated closure where you basically say these are stranded assets uh and are high risk and we 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 basically going to take a hit on them because they haven't fully recovered yeah. uh, their investment and obviously 
the investment in uh, the just part of the just transition, uh, which is a combination of what happens to coal workers who get reskilled and redeployed, what happens to coal communities, but also investments in upstream industrialization opportunities. Instead of importing everything from China, to actually make as as the bulk of the kit within South Africa, and that is going to be the yeah. real uh, kicker. That's going to be the real benefit. But this is, I'm I'm interested in some. I'm interested in that because are we not putting the cart before the horse? I I have an issue with localization in the sense that um, if we're asking if if the emergency is an energy emergency, and we need to import or we need kit up and running quickly, two years. Um, 10 gigs, um, does it matter where the hell it comes from? By any means, you said. And if it has to come from China, what? let's, let's welcome it. You know, if, it's, if that's what's going to do it, why do we care who makes it? Because if it's going to save our economy and it's going to enable us to later on become one of the world's leading green exporters, surely the, the, the initial um, uh, source of that power doesn't matter. I I I agree, but I I I do not agree with those who are arguing, for example, RMB, uh, Rand Merchant Bank, that we should relax the local content requirements in order to accelerate um, the implementation of renewables. Because basically, what you're doing is saying to workers, "Listen, we're going to keep the lights on, but you're not going to have a job." I, I, South Africa is the most unequal, officially now, according to World yeah. Bank reports, the most unequal country in the world. And the, we cannot ignore that reality. But the local jobs have gone already. I mean, they went after Zuma stopped building, after Zuma stopped building renewable um, uh, uh, plant, uh, 2016, 20, these plants, I remember there was an auction of a wind farm equipment uh, plant in PE, I remember. Sure reading about and, and others. I think there's one there's one plant left in the country making solar panels. It's in Pine Town. Um, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there are two, you know, but it can't be many. I mean, those jobs have already been destroyed. They don't exist now. We're trying to we're trying to grow them, but aren't we trying to do it the wrong way around? I mean, sure, obviously we don't want anyone to lose their job while this is happening. But but the transition needs to be quick. Or is it or or maybe not. There's a question: Is a is a just transition? Is a quick transition more likely to be just than a slow one? I think a quick transition that is premised on the importation of from China of the bulk of the kit is not going to be a just transition. Uh, we have at the moment a standoff. And many of the IPP developers are saying we're not going to reach financial close for bid window five until we get. A deal on local content requirements. It's 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 almost a strike, um, and that is that is unfortunate. What should be happening? We should all be getting together. Uh, the DTI, the developers, the CSR researchers, who the financial institutions, getting around and saying, "Listen, let's agree on the mission, which is we we build ten thousand we build ten thousand megawatts." Yes. We can't all buy solar panels from one factory, but let's commit to long-term certainty 
And that in turn creates an enabling environment for investors who want to reopen the factories to set up manufacturing plants uh, that are going to create jobs. I'm working, for example, with a BE entrepreneur who's investing in a windmill manufacturing plant in, in Saldana that can make windmills with 85% yeah. local content. Uh, so that's yeah. an example of what is possible if we just get into a problem-solving mode. But the, currently we have ideological yeah. debates about, no, 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 we don't want local content because it's going to re retard uh, the pace of investments. I, I, I don't think yeah. that's tested. I think we need to get into a room, put the numbers on the table. And yes, yeah. if there is the need for relaxation as a bridge into what becomes uh, a, a, the biggest job creation program since 1994, we shouldn't uh, discard that golden yeah. opportunity. But uh, Mark, sorry, I, just did, I don't want to get stuck on this point, but are we having the wrong conversation? Because it's not who builds the solar panels or who builds the, the windmills. It's what we do with the power after that that matters. But I'm saying the two can go together. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look at uh, energy construction in South Africa in, in the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the, 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 you, know, the, you, you didn't have people saying, oh, we're just building power plants in order to kind of put electrons on the grid. It was part of an entire industrialization strategy with industrial policies to support particular sectors. We need to do that again. And I think it's possible especially given the fact that uh, renewables are decentralized, deconcentrated. I mean, uh, CSP plants, a bunch of mirrors and pipes, even we can make them. Let's hold it. I, I, I sort of half agree and half, and half down, but it's not the, it's, 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 a, it's a conversation perhaps for another, another time. Um, to come back to the paper that you initially wrote um, uh, with, the, with the Blended Finance Task Force, it's interesting because you're focusing, it focuses mainly on um, this pledge that was made at COP26, I think, was it, yeah. um, in Glasgow last year, where between them, the UK, the US, and the EU promised South Africa $8.5 billion um, to help it transition from coal to renewables. And it's very quickly led to a lot of activity, including the appointment of um, uh, uh, former Reserve Bank Deputy Governor and uh, former, briefly, uh, APSA CEO Daniel Manella as a sort of climate finance uh, advisor in the presidency. Um, uh, your paper concentrates on how to get this money and how to get it right. And... I was quite, um, I was quite surprised, Mark, because you, you, the paper is quite aggressive, in the sense that you you're saying you're only, you know, you this 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 money is only welcome um, under certain conditions. You know, you, you you are we able to dictate terms for the eight point five billion? Can we afford to walk away if we don't like them? You say simply offering additional debt to countries is not going to cut it. Similarly, pledging already committed capital is not only insulting, it's greenwashing. They're, no, yes. they're not taking any prisoners. Uh, th that is correct. I, we don't really see the point in taking loans uh, that are more expensive than what the sovereign, what government can get uh, on the market. Um, 
so it's important that these that the, the debt component of this funding is attractive enough. Um, and secondly, it needs to incorporate a significant amount of grant funding or at least zero interest funding for the just transition part of, of, of the challenge we face. So, so, so yes, I think, it, I think South Africa can punch above its weight. It's got a lot of leverage. The donor countries um, have got a lot to lose if this fails um, in terms of losing face. So I think we can uh, negotiate tough, and it will be very much dependent not so much on arguing for certain kinds of funding, but for arguing for a pipeline of projects that make sense uh, in terms of the emergency we face, but also the long term. And at the moment, um, you know, ESCOM has invested a lot over the year, over the last two years, in in developing that pipeline of projects, and it is being uh, discussed uh, with the with the with the relevant uh, funders. But publicly, we don't know what that is yeah. yet. Because it was ESCOM that first found this money, wasn't it? I mean, they went looking for it. Yes, ESCOM, after Dureta was appointed as CEO at the beginning of 2020, he, mm. he went on a mission to figure out whether, as he put it then, green finance can help uh, sort out ESCOM's balance yeah. sheet. Um, and that led to the gradual formulation of what, what, what he called a framework agreement, uh, which would lock the different funders into a framework agreement that would commit them to yeah. funding uh, certain aspects of the transition, but it soon became clear to government that this was going to have to be a sovereign level deal. Uh, so so the, it was taken away. There was a it. shift. Yeah, it was. Well, not so much taken away, but it was kind of taken over. Eskom is obviously still obviously still involved. Yeah, but I did read an interview, I think, with Daniel Manila the other day, saying that some of the money would be needed for other things, <laughs> and I did feel sorry for um, for Eskom. But you know, you talk about the, the the funders losing money. Um, the money was promised to us before we turned our back on them after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think the same? Um, do you think the same atmosphere still applies between South Africa and those countries? I, I really, I mean, I was at the at the World Economic Forum uh, two weeks ago in Davos, and I really, really don't think South Africa's position on the the Russia Ukraine conflict is going to influence uh, how the international donors relate to us with regard to climate finance and the energy transition. What will um, affect us is that their attention has been deflected away from our priorities because of that conflict. But I don't think we're talking about, you know, um, us. Uh, I think there's a, an understanding of why we took the position we did. You, you, you talk about half the electricity, uh, half of our electricity being renewable by 2030, but with also with respect to the Department of Energy is run by a minister still fighting for, um, for oil and gas exploration off our shores. I mean, if he isn't focused, how can anybody else be focused? Is it He's he's key in all of this, surely. Yeah, sure. He's he's absolutely key. But I'm I'm an academic whose job it is to articulate narratives yeah. that stretch uh, actors, that stretch the imagination, that coalesce people into taking on on the seemingly impossible. 
I'm, I'm not a journalist who, who then who has to then report skeptically about the possibility of anything changing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's my job. I'm, 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 I, I'm there to say yes. The Minister of Minerals and Energy needs to have a broader vision. He needs to be much more appreciative of the urgency of the situation, and he needs to understand that renewables can actually deliver uh, in a way that other technologies can't. Um, and therefore, we must ac accelerate. But I also have to say to all the rest of the players that, listen, this can work uh, within a very short time frame. And there will be obstacles. There will be those who, 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 who may not want this to happen, but we must put pressure on them. Well, can we just briefly about gas? There's the, you, you say in the, in the earlier paper <clears throat> that there's a place for gas. You don't talk much about gas in your article. There's a big lobby for gas in South Africa. Once again, Guadalajara calls it the game changer. The business initiative, the NBI, uh, has just brought out a huge paper, which I'm sure you've seen on uh, the, the place for gas, which suggests um, uh, you know building quite a large infrastructure as a transition fuel. There was a fabulous piece uh, produced the other day. I don't know if you read it by Susan Comrie for Amabungani on how much gas we might need, which is not a lot. Um, do we need do we need this transition fuel? You suggest in your article rather than the paper. You suggest perhaps we could use hydrogen, which is quite exciting. But in order to have the hydrogen, we'd need the we need the solar panels and the renewable energy kit to to, to make it first, yeah. wouldn't we? And we 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 don't have enough to make that. We'd have to import it. Oh horror! Yeah. Um, so so on, so on on the gas. Um, we, we, we basically suggest um, that we should be looking at 60 gigs of, uh, of backup, 63 gigs of, of storage, half of which would be battery um, and half of which would be gas. So the gas would be used not as base load, and we don't describe yeah. gas as a transition fuel. The, the, the narrative that gas is a transition fuel is actually creates the, 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 the rationale for using gas as baseload uh, yes. on the assumption that you know, renewables are not quite ready. Renewables yes. are now cheaper than gas, cheaper than coal, cheaper than nuclear. There, there's no transition to, to, to renewables. The renewables is happening now. You don't need gas to transition there. But what you do need gas for is storage uh, and backup. Yeah. And, and the reason why is that Yes, battery. You will. You can use batteries, um, but batteries will give you a four-hour uh, breathing space, and there may be weather events which are longer than four hours. And for that, you're going to need gas um, in order to kind of get you through uh, the, yeah. those rare moments. So, between one and two percent of your total power generation will come from gas. So you'll have a big gas infrastructure, but you won't use a lot of gas. Okay. So, and just the, the point you're making about batteries, obviously you would recognize that in, in five to 10 years, batteries might give you 10 hours of power rather than four now. I mean, that one can expect the development in batteries to be exponential, surely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you will, no, you will notice in the, if you read carefully that we're suggesting that the, the gas infrastructure should come online only in the 2030s. Yes. And we're saying that because by then the techno techno technologies yeah. would have advanced substantially. We'll have much more renewables on the grid and we can do green hydrogen. But the same applies to, yeah. to batteries. 
Um, they're, they're, so there's already a company in South Africa uh, called Bushveld Energy that is uh, that is moving into vanadium, and the Chinese have moved into yeah. vanadium in okay. quite a big way uh, because there's a massive global shortage of lithium. So, Mark, uh, so yeah, to, so, to make all of this ha- happen, to get it all together, and to stop this in- internal, as you described earlier on, bickering about this and this project, and everyone has got their favorite fuel and their favorite mix and all this sort of thing. The one place that I see it possibly coming to a head is in the Presidential Climate Commission. I don't know how you feel about that, but do you, is it possible that the final call could rest there with, with, with Chippy Oliver as the head of the Secretariat um, running the show? He's an inexperienced guy. He knows how to make calls, um, but may also be subject to very intense political pressure uh, in that environment. Um, uh, what do you think of the Presidential Climate Commission? Have you got um, high hopes for it, being a leader in all of this? I have got high hopes for the PCC, um, but the, the final call is definitely not going to lie there. Oh. The role of the PCC is to facilitate a broad-based coalition of the willing uh, that includes uh, uh, Minister Montage yeah. uh, in order to commit South Africa to the energy transition uh, that makes sure that we are not a climate pariah. Yeah. We were in the past a racial, racist pariah. Yeah. And we must never repeat that history by becoming a climate pariah. And I think the PCC is our best hope to make sure that that is not our fate. Who's going to make the call though? Who's going to make the call to build 10,000 megawatts in two years? It's going to have to be the president. Uh, who will have to lead his cabinet from the front? How, how much hope do we have of that? I mean, he's got to do it. He's got to do it very quickly. He's got to do it quickly. I think. I think we have a okay. six-week window. Six weeks. Uh, to yes, yeah, six weeks. I think we have a six-week window to make a a strategic decision that would preempt uh, a disaster being triggered by, by some kind of semi-national collapse or total collapse. But if, if we then make the decisions in that context, it might be politically easier to justify, but technically and financially extremely, extremely difficult to implement. So we must do it now. Uh, we must make that uh, national decision. We must build a coalition of the willing that says, we agree on the mission, let's make it happen. Uh, let's figure out how we, we get over the barriers and we implement. And that is is what we need. And you can start without the 8.5 billion. We can. We have to stop there, I'm afraid, Mark. And thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure it's been to talk to you. It's, it's just so exciting. Um, I, I really do hope you get your emergency. I hope it's clean. Uh, thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with a very interesting guest for another edition of Podcast from the Edge. Until then, bye-bye and be safe. Mm-hmm.